0: hey guys welcome back to another episode of the bill barnwell show i am bill barnwell today we answer all of your mailbag questions about the upcoming season and about some changes to the nfl that you suggested but first want to tell you about another podcast because ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, presents not just football with Cam Hayward. Each week, fans get a peek behind the curtain of NFL life. Pittsburgh Steelers defensive tackle and five-time pro bowler, frankly, should be more than five times. If you ask me, Cam Hayward gives his unfiltered thoughts on the league and headlines across all sports. That's not just football with Cam Hayward. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's hit the mailbag this week. Definitely some good questions about current NFL things, some hypothetical NFL things as well. I think that's law when it comes to a mailbag. So let's get to that stuff here. We'll start with a question from Grits and Gravy about the defending one seed in the AFC South, the Tennessee Titans. Grits and Gravy asked, if the Titans are bad this year, the obvious move is to jettison the expensive veterans like Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry, and Taylor Lewan, and rebuild with Malik Willis. But What if they're really good again? Is it worth it to run it back in 2023 on the last year of those contracts, or is it San Francisco 2.0? It's a good question. Um, What I would say first and foremost is, yes, I I do think that if you're going to bring those guys back, I wouldn't play out the last year of those deals. Typically, you're going to see those guys get extensions, especially Tannehill. Very rare you see a quarterback play into the final year of his contract, unless it's his choice typically. But you would figure restructure, extend those guys, create some short-term cap space. I, I I have to admit, I don't think teams are inclined to make it as far as it sounds like Tennessee would in this example and rebuild. Um, you know, Tennessee would be the one seed in the AFC this past year. If they're a, a top three team in the AFC again this year, if they make a reasonable playoff run, I think they'll run it back. But I think, in the big picture, the tough part for me, as someone who's frankly been wrong and doubted Tennessee more often than I should have the last couple of years, is that yes, they've done a great job. John Robinson has finding guys like Derek Henry, Harold Landry, Christian Fulton, Jeffrey Simmons. Uh, Jeffrey Simmons was a first-round pick, but coming off of an injury, uh, Kevin Byard, guys mostly in the second and third round who have been very valuable contributors to this football team. But so many guys who would be the young core of this roster. Aren't there? 2016, it was Jack Conklin, Kevin Dodd, and Austin Johnson, all drafted in the top two rounds. Henry, the fourth selection in that draft, uh, another second rounder, turned out to be a star, but the other three guys are gone. Corey Davis and Adore Jackson, first rounders in 2017, both left the team. Rashawn Evans in 2018, no longer on this roster. A.J. Brown, taken in the second round of 2019, now traded, granted for a first round pick, and we'll see what Traylon Burks does, but traded as well. Isaiah Wilson, um, the first round tackle in 2020 uh because of off-field behavior not on the roster by the end of that first season it's just so difficult to overcome that and even if you do get creative and land players in later rounds you're just trying to compensate for that over and over again like, like right tackle for example you use a first round pick on jack conklin decline his fifth year option draft isaiah wilson to replace him wilson doesn't work out now you draft dylan radens uh, in the second round to play right tackle if he's a great right tackle, then that's fine. But now you've, you've used a first-round pick, a first-round pick, and a second-round pick over the course of six years to try and solve one position. And you don't even have a guaranteed solution yet. I think that's – you really have to – really not have much of a margin for error in other spots. And it's just so hard to operate that way. So to me, I think you know Tennessee is going to go on this course, but I just think they could be such a, a, a more devastating team with slightly different scenarios playing out with their first round picks. Longsword plus one asks, has anybody investigated if there's any noticeable statistical effect from having a crappy field like Soldier Field, which is the example I think everyone gives their all 22 angle is terrible. The field quality is terrible. I I love the stadium. I wish the stadium was going to stick around. It sounds like maybe the Bears are going to build a new one, but the field itself needs some work. Longsword plus one asks is good turf management an advantage for a team and the answer is in terms of studies we don't know because it's so hard to quantify what a crappy quote-unquote field is that could look like anything some people's definition of a pristine field might not be that great to someone else so i think everyone would say soldier field is bad but i i will tell you i think it really depends on what you want to do stylistically what you want to do offensively you know if you're a team Let's say you don't want to throw the ball a lot. You want to play in a field with sloppy footing. You want to try and slow down the game, slow down speed on the other team. Then yeah, a terrible field is great. Probably great for you. If you're not going to be one of those kinds of teams and most other teams you play are going to be. But overall, I don't think it's a good idea. And the reason why is injury. Because you're going to have to play eight or nine home games, plus whatever you do in the postseason, hopefully, on that field. Whereas... Every other team you're playing is only gonna to have to play on your field once, maybe twice if they make it back for the postseason. So you're running a more significant injury risk to your players than you are to the opposing team. Don't want to see anybody get hurt, of course, but you especially don't want to see your own players get hurt if you have a terrible field. I think Washington and Robert Griffin III is the classic example of how that can go wrong for you. So I do think there's probably some advantages hypothetically, but I do think you want to probably have the best field quality possible. Number nine, Chainer asks, your good friend Robert Mays, it's debatable, refers to the Bengals as an outlier and an anomaly when it comes to how to build a successful team. Would you agree with that sentiment? And if so, why? On the offensive side of the ball, no. They drafted a couple of really talented wide receivers. They drafted a quarterback with the first overall pick, used a first-round pick on a left tackle, filled in the other spots on the roster. It worked out great. Now, obviously, it's not going to work out as well for other teams, as so it worked out for the Bengals, but hey that's pretty straightforward as far as what teams do on the defensive side of the ball though that is a very different situation and i think it is an outlier and an anomaly we don't see many teams build the core of their defense through free agency and have it work i mean teams try to pull it off but when you look at my free agent grades in the past so many of them are c plus c c minus d plus and i'd always get asked why and the answer is Signing guys in free agency is usually a bad idea. It usually doesn't work out for you. You know, obviously, some moves do work out, and the Bengals certainly have a number of those, but typically that's a bad way to build a football team. But the Bengals have made it work. They're probably going to start six guys uh, in week one who they signed in free agency on the defensive side of the ball, plus BJ Hill, who they added in a trade with the Giants. And last year they had Larry Akanjobi, who was another free agent as well. So I think the Bengals have made this work at least for one year. We've seen other teams pull this off in the past or try to pull it off in the past. The Jets and the Giants uh, were teams recently, maybe in the last decade or so, where they went out and signed a ton of defensive free agents and had it work for a season. And then in year two, it kind of went south. And I think for the Bengals, our our question now is, what happens in year two? I, I hope it does work out. Really exciting football team. And I think it's always cool to see teams do things in a different way. I think teams Emulating the Rams and trading draft picks for players has been fun. I don't know that I love all the moves, but a fun thing for the league. And certainly, I think if teams see, hey, the Bengals did this, we should follow in the Bengals' footsteps, that's also going to be good for the league and good for the players because teams spend more money in free agency. Well, whoop-dee-damn-do is the name of this person on Twitter. That's a great Twitter handle, I guess. He has a question, or they have a question, I'm not going to assume gender, about the play calling with the New England Patriots. Quote-unquote, what is going on with the play calling in New England? Is Belichick really going to let some combination of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge call plays, or is this just some practical joke? Well, I'm not going to say that I'm the only person who does this. I believe other people do this as well. But... If you've ever watched an NFL game, chances are you said to yourself, man, that last play call was terrible. I could do better than that. I could call plays better than this NFL coach. Imagine how frequently Bill Belichick must think that because he actually is qualified to do this stuff. I, I think Bill Belichick has a specific idea of how he wants this offense to run, how he wants it to look, how he wants them to operate on a week to week basis when it comes to game planning and when it comes to play calling and I think we're seeing Bill Belichick in his, you know, in, in certainly the later run of his NFL career. I think he's become very clearly a guy who wants to work with people he trusts. I don't think he wants to bring in a lot of new people. Um, you know, We've seen him bring in members of his family to help run the defense, former players to take over on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you know, Nick Saban, one of his best friends or one of his coaching Friend certainly is a guy who likes to bring in a lot of people from outside of Alabama to try and work with them, to try and modernize and improve Alabama's offense, Belichick's kind of making his room smaller and, and sort of relying on voices he trusts. So I'm not surprised he has no judge and Matt Patricia in the room there. But is it a good idea? I think we'll see. I mean, certainly if you talk to NFL coaches, there are some people who think the offensive play caller has to be someone who is a genius. They have to be perfect at all times. And there are coaches who say, I'm not sure if I'm a good play caller, and maybe I'm better off handing that duty off to somebody else. So I think there's a range of different opinions about what the right thing to do with your offensive play caller is. And I think that as long as there's smart game planning and smart week-to-week decision making, and there's a good sense organizationally of how they want to run that offense, I think it's going to be fine. I don't think it's going to be as big of a concern maybe as people are making it out to be. But I'll ask you guys, and you guys can let me know what you think. What I would wonder is if if you're a coach and and i've heard this from many coaches that the idea that if you're an offensive coach you have to know defense inside and out you don't know what to attack unless you know defenses inside and out well nobody knows defenses inside and out better than bill belichick so i think if bill belichick was going to take a year probably i think he'd have to take a year off or a year to just focus on offense and say i'm going to be the offensive coordinator from this point forward i'm going to turn over the defense to Gerard mayo or you know my sons and let them do that i'm strictly an offensive guy now would he be a top 5 offensive coordinator i think i think he'd be okay at it immediately probably pretty good immediately and then be great at it within a year obviously you need to have you know great right personality can't make mac jones into tom brady but i do think the offense would look uh pretty coherent. I don't think they make a lot of mental mistakes. And I think there'd be a pretty decent job of week-to-week game planning. And so I think Bill Belichick would be good at that, but don't know that he's going to be doing that necessarily with the Patriots in their current situation. Dallas Bammer has a question about a Cowboy and a guy who was missing from my top 25 breakout candidates list, which is up at ESPN now. It's Micah Parsons, and he says, I noticed Micah Parsons was left out of your 25 breakout candidates list. Seems to fit squarely in the Pro Bowl to stardom category. Was that a conscious omission because he already achieved stardom year one? The answer is yes. Micah Parsons was a first-team All-Pro, let alone a Pro Bowler, a first-team All-Pro. One defensive rookie of the year, was second in the defensive player of the year balloting, was a superstar at two different positions. To me, I think it's obvious. At Micah Parsons is already that sort of player. I think if you're talking about someone like AJ Terrell, where he doesn't have that, that sense of notoriety necessarily, to me, he's a superstar, but I could see people saying, oh, why didn't you have him on, on this team, not knowing that I already see him as a superstar. I think everybody thinks Micah Parsons is already a superstar. So no issue there for me. I think he does not, should not be on the list because he's already considered to be that tier of player. Nashman92 asks a very Big question. Get ready. Sit down for a minute. We have a lot to talk about here. They ask, so this is the 20th anniversary of the great realignment with Houston joining the NFL. If you could make any adjustments to the current alignment, what would they be? And they say, you could move the Ravens to the AFC East, the offense to the AFC South, Indy to the AFC North, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think I have a bigger vision for what the nfl could be i mean obviously yes if you've paid attention to the nfl it's absurd that dallas is in the nfc east when they play in texas the dolphins are in the afc east instead of the south when the other two teams in the in florida are in their respective southern divisions now of course if you move dallas to the west jerry jones is going to sue same thing with the dolphins although Stephen ross not really uh in position to do anything to the nfl right now the colts are in the afc south even though they're north of cincinnati and way north of Miami. This makes no sense. But I wanted to think about it from a different perspective. I said, "Okay, let's say the NFL was starting tomorrow. What would the divisions look like with these 32 teams?" And so, I decided to change things a bit. Here is what I think the vision for the this fake hypothetical NFL would be. I think you do four divisions as opposed to eight. So, four divisions here. We have the West, which starts with the Dallas Cowboys, which I know, Jerry's going to be upset, but he gets lots of rivalries here that are going to be compelling for his team. No, they don't play Washington, but frankly, I don't think anybody outside of those two teams will miss Cowboys and Commanders. I don't think even Cowboys fans are really that interested in playing the Commanders anymore. Here's who Dallas has with them in the new Western division. Seattle, not surprising. The Rams, the Chargers, the Broncos. Arizona, Vegas, and San Francisco. So many cool rivalries there. Basically, the NFC West and the AFC West one division, except the Cowboys are in for the Chiefs, who are of course not really in the West. That's more of an old rivalry thing than anything else. But the Cowboys get to play one of the LA teams every year. I'll get to the scheduling in a second. They play San Francisco, which has been a rivalry. They play Vegas, which is going to be a fun one. Denver. There's lots of cool opportunities there for the Cowboys. So yes, no traditional rivalries there for the Cowboys, but otherwise. Kind of similar to what we have now. And then South, very similar. The next division here, all four of the NFC South teams, so Atlanta, Carolina, Tampa Bay, and New Orleans, plus three of the AFC South teams with Tennessee, Houston, and Jacksonville. But the Dolphins are here in the South, where they belong, because they play in the South, as opposed to the Colts. So yes, no more regular annual Miami Buffalo games, Miami Patriots games. It's going to upset some people i understand but now you get rivalries between florida you get miami jacksonville and tampa playing each other every single season to be the kings of florida that's going to be really exciting plus you have you still have Falcons, saints here you have a lot of rivalries in this area that i think are really cool in the midwest we have all four nfc north teams chicago detroit green bay and minnesota all sticking around plus two of the afc north teams in cincinnati and cleveland plus two teams that i think I can't speak for all of them. I was just at their camps last week. I would say that both of these cities would identify as Midwest, Kansas City, and Indianapolis. So yes, Kansas City no longer playing the Broncos and the Chargers. That's kind of a bummer. I do like those rivalries. But now you get Chiefs Packers every year, Chiefs Vikings, Chiefs Colts, Chiefs Browns, Chiefs Bengals. That's going to be some fun games over the next decade. And then finish up in the Eastern Division You have the three teams from the AFC East who are left, the Bills, the Jets, and the Patriots. Sorry, I couldn't think of the Patriots. Bills, Jets, Patriots, three NFC East teams in the Giants, the Eagles, and the Washington Commanders. Plus, logically fitting in geographically, you have the Ravens from Baltimore and the Pittsburgh Steelers. So you still keep that Steelers-Ravens rivalry. Plus, then you get all kinds of Pittsburgh-Philadelphia every year. You get Baltimore-Washington in the same division. You still have, of course, Giants-Jets-Bills up there. You get the Patriots against everybody. I think this makes sense, and it's never going to happen realistically. But you could make this work with a 17-game schedule. Play seven games against your own division, eight against one of the other divisions, so every year the divisions rotate. So you, the other eight teams, from the, if you're the East, you play the North one year, the South one year, the West the third year. And then you play two games against the other teams who finish at the same place in the standings as you did in the other two divisions that are left over. So if you're the seventh-place team in the East, you might play the entire uh the entire north and then the last place team in the south and the last place team sorry seventh place team in the south seventh place team in the west as well so will this ever happen? Absolutely not. Is it a I think a better layout for the NFL? Yes. But again, not gonna happen. Wendell Ferreira asks if you were the GM of an expansion team, how would you build the team? Which positions would you prioritize in the draft and expensive free agency? Which ones would you go after in the expansion draft and cheap free agency? How would you build the coaching staff? Well, this is a tough one. And, and there, I don't think there's any sort of prototype for how you'd want to do anything. I think it's more about sort of what's available to you when you initially take over. I mean, I might prefer an offensive coach in a vacuum, but if the offensive coach is Adam Gase and the defensive coach is available, is I don't know Mike Tomlin. I'd rather hire Mike Tomlin than Adam Gase. So I think you'd make that choice. Passing is going to be more efficient than running. We know, but the Ravens are a very analytically inclined team, and they've made their team work with Lamar Jackson as their quarterback, who's best as a a dual threat player. So they run the ball more than you know the analytics might say it would. You'd want it to do in a vacuum. So I think from the coaching side. From the broader strategy side, I think you have to work with what you have available and then be willing to adapt uh, and change as the years go on. The Patriots are a great example of how they've changed their, their defensive structure. They've changed their style offensively to account for what's cheapest and what's available on the market. I mean, the Patriots, you know, they running the same concepts, but very different in their personnel when they had Wes Welker and Randy Moss and Dante Stalworth on the field as opposed to the Gronk teams from several years later. Now, there's some stuff you want to do. Obviously, uh, I'm pretty inclined to say you want to amass as many draft picks as possible. You want to trade down, not just for the sake of trading down, but you want to trade down if you can. And the expensive draft is basically a lot of late-round picks. So I think you want to try and look at players entering their prime and hope you land on useful guys as opposed to spending on veterans who are injury-prone or guys who you know are on the back end of their careers. You still want to get some of those guys on your roster, but those are guys you can sign in free agency to kind of build a, a tone and a culture to your roster. Those guys don't have to be the highest paid players on your football team, but the most important starters on your football team. And I think ideally, and again, this depends on who's available, but the reward in terms of surplus value for landing a quarterback, a left tackle, a wide receiver, a cornerback, and an edge rusher, so significant on rookie deals. that I think ideally, that's where you want to use your picks. Again, you don't want to take a quarterback who you don't think is any good just because the value might be there if it works out. But I do think if there's guys at those positions you think you're confident in, that's where you want to try and target. Because if you hit on a running back in the first round and you're paying their running back $5 million a year, well, the market's only going to get that guy 12, 13, 14, $15 million a year maximum. So you're only really making $10 million a year in surplus value for what might be a great pick. But if it's a quarterback, that's $35 million a year. If it's a left tackle, it's it's 15 million a year in surplus. If it's a wide receiver, it's 20 million a year in surplus. You get the idea. So you want to try and get the most value out of those picks by going after the players at the most important positions. Mark Bullock, who does an excellent substack, writing about the Washington Commanders, asks as a as a Brit, which NFL owner would be best suited to buy Manchester United from the Glazers. I need some hope. Manchester United, if you're not a soccer fan or a football fan, they're Gotten off to a rough start. It's been a rough decade for them. Uh, It has not been a well-run franchise for a decade now. Most recently, getting blown out to start the year twice by two middling, two two underwhelming teams in the English Premier League, just looking like they are uh, a shambles of a football club and the Glazers who own those Tampa Bay Buccaneers also have purchased Manchester United. They have been very unpopular. They've put the team, saddled the team with debt, refused to invest in their their stadium at Old Trafford, and so taken money out of the franchise to line their own pockets, which is great for the Buccaneers, not so great for Manchester United. So whoever should buy Manchester United. I think this has to be rich, and I think the Waltons who just bought the Broncos. Could come to mind. I, I admittedly, Stan Kroenke, who's wealthy, has not necessarily been the best thing for Arsenal, the owner of the Los Angeles Rams. I would say David Tepper in Carolina, just because I think he would at least approach the transfer market logically, which is something Manchester United has not done in recent years. Chris Benson asks, "What is the worst record you can imagine for a team making the playoffs? Is a seven 10 nfc wild card or nfc east afc south winner possible it's a good question i i don't think a seven and ten wild card would be possible i just think it's too tough to make it work obviously so many teams could possibly win a wild card you're competing at so many other teams that it just seems likely that 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 wild card is going to be a nine or ten win team not saying it's impossible that an eight eight or nine team could do it but seven and ten seems very unlikely but as far as division winners go. That is very different because it is very possible that a seven and 10 division winner could happen. I Again, is it a guarantee? No, probably not. But that extra game for the 17th game comes outside of your division. So there's a good chance that you're going to be playing a team that's better than you if you're stuck in the worst division in football. So there's a chance that all, all four teams would lose that game. And we've seen seven and nine teams win their division. So I don't think it's out of the question whatsoever that a 7-10 team would win their division. Now, I will say this much. I know that Chris pointed out the NFC East or the AFC South. I just want to say I don't know that we're all that good of judges of which divisions are likely to be good or bad heading into an NFL season. Now, yes, I think the NFC West is going to be better than the NFC East, and I'd be surprised if that were not the case. But think about last year. You would have heard probably the best divisions in football were the NFC West, and the AFC North. And the NFC West was great. Seattle was disappointing, which I don't think anybody expected, but Rams got better. Niners got better. Cardinals were really good for a while and then faded as the season goes on because that's what the Cardinals do. But AFC North had three teams make it to the postseason in 2020, 2020, and all three of those teams then missed the postseason in 2021. The Bengals, the fourth team in that division in 2020, I think seven games back of everyone else, they made it to the playoffs and newly won the Super Bowl. So I think we overestimate our knowledge of how these things go in advance. John Hauser asked a kind of similar question that I also wanted to get to. What is the more likely AAC West result? So now this is maybe the best division of football as we head into 2022. Is the more likely result that all four teams make the playoffs or only one team makes it? And I haven't run any modeling or anything. But I do think I'm pretty confident that the math would say only one of the four teams makes it. Now, the best case scenario, if you were going to try and construct a universe where all four teams make it to the postseason, would be that they all go three and three in the division because it's going to be tough for you to make the playoffs if you go 0 and six inside your division or 1 and 5. Now, if that happens, they all have to go 7 and 4 outside of the AFC West to get in. If you assume it's going to take 10 wins as a wildcard team to make it in, now that's not impossible. But it is kind of difficult, just in terms of getting everything right. The odds that you're going to be you know, so inconsistent within your own division, but then so much better outside of it, tough to buy. And I will say this, during the 16-game era from 2002 to 2020, I did go back and look at this. This was back when there were six playoff teams. There was no season or no division where if there had been seven playoff teams instead of six... One division would have sent four teams to the postseason. Plenty of three teamers. I think one year where the AFC South came close, I think the Texans were seventh or sorry, were eighth in the conference when seven would have made it. But I do think that that is pretty unlikely to happen. So I think it's it would be more likely we'd see one team in the AFC West as opposed to four. Cliff Clinton says if you hypothetically had to hurt a Bears fan's feelings, Heading into the new season, what facts and predictions would you highlight? I would just show them the Bears roster on ESPN.com. Pseudo Nick asked, does Mike McCarthy survive the season? Not as a human. God, that's dark, he says. Uh, apparently Kyle Shanahan asking this question under a pseudonym when it comes to nihilist football opinions. But as the head coach of Los Vaqueros. And that is a good question about Mike McCarthy. Not a good question. I don't want Mike McCarthy to pass away. I want to make that clear. Um, what I will say about Mike McCarthy is that I think we are a little too aggressive when it comes to the idea of having him move on. Look at Mike McCarthy's background. Look at Jerry Jones's background. This is the same guy, Jerry Jones, who stuck with Mike stuck with Mike McCarthy stuck with Jason Garrett for a decade. and it wasn't like it was a good decade. They won two postseason games over that stretch. It was a lot of eight and eight, a lot of nine and seven, a lot of seven and nine from Jason Garrett. Jerry Jones stuck with Jason Garrett for a decade of football before moving on. When I'd say after about year three, Cowboys fans were ready for things to change. The Cowboys were 12 and 5 last year. They weren't bad last season. They were bad the year before, but I think most people would write that off. Dak Prescott getting hurt. They are probably, if not the favorite, certainly comfortably in, in the race with the Eagles to win the NFC East this year. And yes, you never want to say anything's impossible. I, I don't think. I think if Jerry Jones has the opportunity to hire someone who happened to come available, if there were a prominent coach who, say, retired from their, their team last year and they happened to be available, would Jerry Jones go out and hire that guy during the offseason? Yeah, I think that's totally within the realm of possibility next year. But I think it would take something really, really drastic. Like I think it would take a 1-7 start from the Cowboys for Jerry Jones to fire Mike McCarthy. I'll finish up here with a question from Peter Bukowski, who asks, "What if quarterback were early 2000s emo pop punk songs?" And I was going to put together a list. This is exactly my wheelhouse, but unfortunately, John Thomas already beat me to the punch and gave the perfect answer, which is Zach Wilson is 1,000% Stacey's mom. Which I don't know if that's any more pop punk song. I guess Bowling for Soup covered Stacey's Mom by fountains of Wayne, but. That is the perfect answer. I can't top that. So I am going to finish up here. Hope you guys enjoyed this mailbag. I know it's a quick one. I out this week. We'll be back next week previewing more of the NFL season. We are a week closer to the upcoming year. Hope you guys are enjoying training camp. Hope your favorite teams are staying healthy. Hope your teams aren't getting into fights. Don't want that to happen, obviously. As I record this, I'm reading about uh, the Patriots and the Panthers getting into fights and both coaches being mad. How dare their players fight in training camp? But We have more audio coming next week, more Bill Barnwell show on the way. Thanks so much for listening and hope you guys are enjoying the preseason.